I asked my daughter, what's the mobile future? That's not the normal thing to ask, as she was at the time, a six-year-old. Her response was, oh, it looks like this, Daddy. So she a cereal box on her head, and she attached a phone to it, and she did this remarkably was the forerunner of wearable technology. Hi, this is the Strelka Institute podcast with a talk by Dean Johnson, futurist and head of innovation and Bradworth. He explains how the Internet of Things relies on continuity of experience, what leads to memorable moments of emotional punctuation, and how tech can be smart both in appearance and feature set. Now, I have with me my iPad. What I'm going to do tonight is present everything from an interactive book. Now, that in itself is a little bit confusing. That means it's something that's produced in iBooks Author by Apple Software. We would normally call that something like an iBook, although we're not technically allowed to call it that. But for the purposes of this, it's so much simpler, so I will refer to it as that. Now, what I want to talk about tonight is the Internet of Things. That's a massively sweeping statement, and something, as we touched on earlier this evening, not necessarily that relevant now. You know, when this was first conceived with lots of devices and people and software all talking to each other, this was about something that actually communicated via the internet. A lot of what I'll be talking about tonight doesn't even need the internet. This is device to device. This is mobile being as mobile as it possibly could be without the need of the internet. And then when you think about the cloud and how everything in the future will live somewhere in the cloud, that's fantastic until you actually try and connect to something. I'm over here obviously from the UK and I can't roam around freely with my mobile immediately connecting to everything all the time. Although ironically, even when I'm home in the UK, I can't connect to everything all the time. So that's still a way off. But what I wanted to do first was let you know a little bit about me, what I do and the company I work for to make that actually relevant and put that into context because otherwise I'm just kind of throwing some facts and figures at you all. The title as you see here is Speed Up for Traffic Lights, Bank on Green, Not Red. Now that's my personal philosophy. I drive quite fast anyway, not breaking the speed limit. However, approaching my attitude to life is approaching a traffic light. I don't slow down expecting it to be red. I speed up hoping that it will be green. Now that approach applies to pretty much everything we do. And that's about saying, look, if you just take your foot off the gas and you slow down and you take too much time, I will show you some examples of things that actually, you know, they took a little too much time and someone beat them to get something out to market. Um, now, this is really important with the, the Internet of Things and all of those connected devices because there's a race on at the moment. That race is for wearable technology, amazing mobile devices, and all of that content that sits across that. And a big chunk of that as well is the social networks, the way we all communicate. And that's very much a part of this connected content. It's what we say to each other. You know, those conversations that revolve within our social networks that, um, you know, the manufacturers can pick up on. They can create the future from the kind of things that you'll want. However, they're not going to do all of that. They're not going to sit back. They also want to steer it. So what do I do? I do a big chunk of this. I get to have fun spending time with interesting celebrities, slightly geeky celebrities, go on TV and radio and talk about all sorts of technology. Now, a big chunk of that is what's actually happening out there in the world now. But also a big part of that is about the people that we work with and, and the, the type of digital future that we're trying to um, we're trying to form here so that involves design technology publishing and innovation uh, now innovation is a very broad term now basically that's something that's essentially 
pushing boundaries. That's something that's delivering something to you, something to consumers that you may not have known that you needed. Now, to many, that would seem that we're almost delivering something worthless. But you think about the iPad, and I will touch on that later. If you all were asked, would you like an iPad? Would you like a big iPhone? You probably would all have turned around and said no. You were presented with something like that, and it became a very different thing. Also, I talk a lot, um, which you will notice, and I hope our dear translator at the back there will um, <laughs> acknowledge that I'm not doing it quite as fast as I usually do. I get to wave my arms around. I get to do that on stage, but also I get to do that in a creative environment. And a big chunk of what we talk about here is keeping that enthusiasm. A big chunk of that means as a designer and as an innovator, it's about living and breathing what you do. I love cars. We work with big automotive brands. We work with Disney. Now, that's kind of a kid in a candy store situation where we get to play with all the things that as kids we would love to have worked with. I'll show you Star Wars in a minute. Wow, that's great stuff to work with. And I get to play with gadgets. Now, some of that's just really geeky stuff, but other things, you know, that's, that's things that stay behind a wall of NDAs, working with global tech giants where actually I'd love to tell you all about them, but I can't. So, now right back to the beginning, there's a picture of me up here, quite an embarrassing picture of me as a 13, nearly 14-year-old. I've been in this business a long time simply because I started very young. Now, what was I doing there? I was sitting down for a newspaper article where we'd started our own software company and our own magazine. Again, this was about how do I combine a love for technology and digital content, but also the fact that I wanted to be a designer and an artist. So I got to actually play with all of these things. Now, something as a designer, that role has really, really changed. Whereas it used to be about the design. And then it was passed on to someone over here that made things. Those two parts of the job have, have almost become enmeshed beyond belief because it doesn't mean that the designer is building things but it does mean that he has to know everything about the way that it's built not again not the knowledge that he needs to have to build it but how people will use it and live with it and also kind of have the kind of demands they will have once they have that device or that software or something in their hands so that job as a designer has changed a lot I used to be a portrait artist I'd just say that but actually that's what I really wanted to do when I was at college I wanted to take a degree in fine art but I realized I'd come out the other end with a piece of paper that said well done you're a fine artist that's not brilliant for the job market so I was quite practical whereas most of the time I'm relatively impractical because I like to wave my arms around and do big creative things I was quite practical about how this was going to lead to some kind of employment so this was working with all sorts of amazing celebrities from Michael Douglas to crazier Apache Indian to Anthony Hopkins but this was about kind of pursuing my creative goals but then I started to employ that in 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 the real world so this became illustration and graphic design for content looking at how do you promote wind farms in an environment that naturally would show you green rolling hills and blue skies but actually if it's in wind farm it's all about the technology that sits behind it you know and things down to how do you bring robots and cartoons and things to life which moves it on to quite neatly some of the content that we have now so this for instance at, at Bramwith we've produced our own children's book app I and mean, what the only big aim of this was about doing lots of firsts and one of those was you take a photo of your child at the start you put their own name in it and then one of the final pieces is, is that becomes their own private little book I and mean, it becomes personalized and you do things that you wouldn't normally do you use the accelerometer in, a, in an iPad to change the water level at the top and these are all little touches that as a designer you then move on to and create something technical. Now, we've been producing at Brownwith mobile technology for over a decade. So that means all of the apps that you see now, they started out as 
applications, amazingly. Now, this is an interesting thing when a big chunk of conversation still revolves around, is this the death of the app? Will everything be mobile, web-optimized? Well, of course, it will also be mobile, web-optimized. But you can't ever say that there won't be any apps because you're technically saying there won't be any software. And even the internet that you view on an iPad is through an app. So we can park that argument for one moment and say that this is kind of the history that we've had with mobile technology at Brownworth. And we, we started out with some of the fun-looking PDAs as we worked our way through to the revelation and that gave us something like the iPhone. And it really gave us the opportunity to push boundaries. Whereas we were essentially gathering bits of data and giving little bits of technical information, we were then able to give a really exciting experience at the other end. Story of how we developed our first iPad app and launched it on the day that the iPad came out. But here's the result of some of that. Now, the first app is the Guinness World Records app that we launched on day one. We were able to do that thanks to, uh, I sat down at an awards ceremony next to someone from Apple. I had no plans to do this. However, prior to that, we had said to Guinness World Records, look, your content would be amazing if Apple produced this big kind of iPhone thing, because essentially they have this big printed book that they produce every year, but they also have video and audio and all sorts of kind of amazing experiences that surround that that never really get seen anywhere other than the very linear TV programs or the printed book. So they said to us, okay, well, that's, that's great. Essentially, you've pitched something to us to go on a device that doesn't exist yet. So we say, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll use a piece of video and we'll put that out there into the world and see what the result is when that comes back. So we used a piece of foam board and we motion tracked and edited some video onto that piece of foam board and made it look the right shape and size for, to be an iPad. We didn't know it was going to be called the iPad at that point. YouTube went crazy for it. It just it isn't this new Apple device. We were then able to go back to the client and say, look, we've produced something here that demonstrates that your audience is hungry not only for your content but also for this device they said okay look we'll put some faith in this go ahead and see what you can develop so we'd produce something so this gets me back to sat around that table again at the awards next to someone from apple i whipped out a little ipod touch with the app that we developed to that point and said look wouldn't this be amazing on your new big iphone device thing so we were able to have just enough information in the run-up to the launch of the iPad. So in the week that the iPad launched, we had final sign-off. Well, actually, we showed it to the client in, in the US on the Tuesday before launch. They approved it. On the Wednesday, we submitted the first build to Apple. On the Thursday, we submitted the final build with the final beta. On the Friday, it was approved. And on the Saturday, the iPad launched. Now, this is all about that bank on green for traffic lights. This was about not sitting back and waiting and saying, look, let's wait for this thing to come out. Let's just see what everybody else does. We wanted to be there. And it wasn't just about us. It wasn't about us at all because what one thing that you will notice is most people haven't heard of Bramwith. And that's no bad thing because they've heard of all of our clients and they've heard about the things that we've made for them. But that means that we kept our foot on the gas and we kept going, we kept going, we kept going and we were able to hit the ground running. And that's one of the great things about digital content. And the internet of things is that we're able to constantly change this kind of content. We're able to adjust and tweak and change things because it's not about a printed book that you then have to do a reprint, you have to plan ahead. We're able to keep changing and keep iterating. So the other amazing wall of things up here, we've got Headspin Storybook, which was a great game that was about, I personally love pop-up books. Now, the great thing about pop-up books is the theater about this and, and it's tactile and there's some real drama to it. 
if you then just do a straight translation of that, you end up with something that's not as good as the original. Now, that original was all about that theatre. So what we wanted to do was create something that you could add, but you could only add in a digital environment. So we added a gaming element. So it meant that everything beautifully popped up. So there was mechanical elements as well as a kind of the engineered digital paper. But we also added gaming. Uh, and that was something you couldn't do within that the kind of the pop-up book environment. Massively successful, anyway. Um, and then there's something here like the Top 100 Albums app. This was about taking something that was a big coffee table book and a series of smaller books and saying, look, this is incredible music to discover. Why don't you play it all through the app? And then if you want to go on beyond the, the top 20 in each of these decades and build them up to the top 100 of amazing music, you just do that as an in-app purchase. So we were starting to use some of the, the mechanics of of the mobile environment and saying, look, in-app purchase kind of works and understanding that the audience didn't want to spend all of their money in one go. So we come back to the Internet of Things again and how do people interact with content and how do you get them to actually pay for things? I mean, that's a big thing. We have so many models now where you have kind of premium products make money, but they don't sell in enormous quantities simply because people want the the lowest common denominator, say that common denominator, translate all of that. They want to everything for nothing. And that's kind of the nature of the app environment at the moment. But you're able to then start nibbling back and start eating back at that by giving people micropayments. Eventually top up to much, much, much more than that premium price. Then there's fish that you've already seen. Journey to the Exoplanets. Now this was about taking an amazing environment and saying, look, what if you could place someone on a planet's surface? What if you could use your iPad to then pan around and look as if you were on that surface? So we had an illustrator that created these incredible 360-degree vistas, and you used your iPad for just that. Worked for Lexus, then Doctor Who, an amazing brand. Again, great opportunity to really bring it to life. And I stood on stage in Frankfurt a year prior to the launch of this and said, I do a lot of wouldn't it be great ifs and a lot of that arm waving because it's not about waiting for a client to come to you. It's not about waiting for the technology to evolve and it's not about doing that. You know, you always need to be, whether it's your job, whether it's your position, whether it's your opportunity to do something, you need to be thinking those 12, 24 months ahead. And I stood there and said, wow, wouldn't the TARDIS make an amazing navigational device in the middle there? You could spin this TARDIS around and it would reveal all of the contents that you could go and then navigate into. 12 months later, we'd built a rotating 3D TARDIS as a navigational device for Doctor Who. And then the uh, America's presidents was something about taking um, the National Portrait Gallery, the Smithsonian National Portrait Gallery in Washington and bringing that kind of content to life about all of the presidents. And um, now we're looking at things with iBeacons, which I will touch on again about expanding this internet of things. iBeacons are very much about localized location devices so that within your environment, you're able to wander around with the device and it will tell you what it is that you're seeing at that point. Then amazing musical properties, something like Led Zeppelin as an iBook, The Doors as an app, Demi Lovato, I don't know that's quite that's the, the same league. And then, you know, within the entertainment business we're looking at things like um, Saving Mr. Banks um, and Maleficent and these are you know these are amazing cinematic properties and something that can then brought alive with an iBook with a multi-touch book so much further on online website or a, an app is just too much so sometimes there's that balancing act in the middle but then finally our latest release is Star Wars Scene Maker this was fabulous you know we say as kids you kind of think Star Wars is amazing, but then you don't even give a second thought about the fact that you may be working on it. What a great opportunity to create something that allows you to step into J.J. Abrams and George Lucas's shoes and say, look, I want to be the director. 
I want to create my own version of these iconic scenes. And this comes back down to those micropayments again. It's about saying, actually, let's just offer those scenes as and when we build them. We don't just give you everything for a massive price. It's about those samplers and really, really wanting to do it. Great opportunity to work with Disney and Lucasfilm and amazing property. I'm not going to dwell too much on these because I've already talked about these. And actually, this was a piece of foam board that we green screened and motion tracked our content on. This was the version that we did with the IKEA app. That essentially, the internet was the new Apple thing. We were quite surprised, to say the least, that everyone went quite so crazy for that. So four million views in, and we realized we, we kind of had something on our hands. In much the same way as we look at things like, how do we connect those devices in the internet of things? We connect an iPhone to a, a couple of iPads, and then we take that content, and we may or may not flick that to something like a wrist. Now, this is about making those transitions as seamless as possible, about taking that content so that we're not logging into something else and doing something else with it. It's just those simple gestures and actions. Now, this was about... So if we look at urban environments, now, this was very much about... We took something like the launch of a Toyota city car, something that very much that needed to solve a problem that we all face within our urban environments of too many cars on the roads, too much pollution. And how do we pose that to the audience effectively. So we worked with the RCA, the Royal College of Art in London, and we posed that very question and said, look, if you were to solve a problem that exists within an urban environment, what would you do? What would that be? You would be surprised how many people designed a chair. I was unaware that that was actually a problem that we faced in an urban environment. However, the, the creme de la creme, the top the very best students that we, we could lay our hands on decided that they needed to solve the problem of sitting down. The next level, they decided we needed bookcases. Again, not an issue I knew we faced. However, the, the kind of the better ideas that came out of that were things like ice cube trays that actually had a, a small lever on the side that allowed you just to pop the ice cube out. These are really simple things. Something that we all kind of bang on a work surface to try and get the thing out. Or it's a lamp contained within just a piece of polystyrene. So the content there is a light bulb and you're not, you, the packaging itself is the case outside. And then we had some interesting things like mechanical flowers. These came to life as you, as, as you walked past and they were an interesting installation. But this was more about kind of appealing to autistic children and, and giving something that genuine movement and life that worked with sound and movement. And then we've got something that actually was one of the winners. And this was about a bike rack that actually lifted your bike up from street level to a point where people couldn't actually steal it from outside your house, which was thought was a great idea. This was about something, now I'll talk about seamlessly taking content within our internet of things. How do we interact with that content? What do we do with those things that um, doesn't mean that we're tapping away on a keyboard, that doesn't mean that we're trying to use remote controls? Well, gestural technology. I mean, this is a big thing for us to work with now because um, particularly as we start to wear wearable devices, those gestures, the way that that works, not only is it about how a camera might recognize how you move your arms around, it could be about how the device that is being worn on your wrist is being moved. Very simple things, but um, actually, you know, this, what on the outset is a, is a complicated implementation. Actually, the, the final result is something that is very simple for the user to You know, we're not typing things in, we're just interacting with content. Now, something we've got at the moment that's interesting, particularly in this environment, is a, an amazing new multi-touch book, Hadid. 
the complete works. Now, I don't know if any of this, if, if you're familiar with Zaha Hadid as an incredible architect. Now, she, talking of someone that really, really puts their foot into the carpet heading for those traffic lights, she was designing and hoping to build amazing installations well before her time. And what's happened is that time has caught up with her. Whether you think of all of that time that she spent designing incredible work was great groundwork for what she does now or not, or whether she was just very frustrated by that. This means that what we've got here is is an incredible digital thing that is offering you know all of her incredible works right from the start to the finish on something as small as this, which is great. But it does mean that you know we're able to work with that content, and she's a stunning designer. She creates landmarks for a stunning environment, and you know from Saudi Arabia to London to wherever they are, they really are standout pieces of architecture. Now, what I want to do here is very quickly: how does an iBook work? So if we open Hadid, we essentially have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages contained within this one piece, which, you know, we're looking at here, some amazing content. But those drawings, we're able to then bring all of that content here, so we're able to work with that. We're able to drop in incredible detail that would normally be in a very, very thick, heavy printed book. Ideal for students of, of any kind of design and architecture, kind of a essential piece of reference and then able to annotate that content but it's a, it's a great piece I'm not going to dwell on this because I've got so much more interesting stuff to cover but yeah you've got an amazing title for Zaha Hadid now I will nip back into okay urban environments the aim zero compromise now what does that mean I can't remember I haven't looked at this for a little while what this means is I, w I wanted to give two really good examples here of good and bad thought within design some of that design, you know, you wouldn't consider necessarily the audio experience as part of that entire design process. That's exactly what hasn't been considered here. Next week, I'm going to be at the um, Formula E testing for the Formula E championships, which essentially, if you don't know about this, it's, it's kind of Formula One with electric cars. They look stunning. Uh, it's an amazing environment. It's a great project. And the fact that um, the whole thing is going to tour the world, but around city centers also highlights the fact that kind of electric cars are our future, as much as I love the petrol ones as well. Now, if any of you have either been to Formula One racing in the flesh or are fans, you'd know that a big part of that experience, what it sounds like when you get there, the fact that you hear the testing before you've even got into the car park to work your way to the grandstand to go and see the whole experience. The sound is something that's completely missing from this. Now, a great example of the complete opposite is Harley-Davidson. Now, Project Livewire is about an amazing new electric motorbike. Harley-Davidson is, again, all about the sound, the thunder of a Harley-Davidson, you know, hopefully getting from A to B if it doesn't break down in between. The fact that you hear a Harley coming. Now, this is something they've really thought about here. Now, the whole point here was they said, look, we can make an electric motorbike. We want people to have the same experience, the kind of the same chill, the shudder down the spine, the, the tingle that you get, you know, physically and, you know, mentally from the experience of riding a Harley-Davidson. So what they made it sound like was a spaceship. They made it sound like this kind of rocket ship hurtling down the road towards you and going past. They want people to know that there's this Harley coming and they want the person that's sitting on it to think, oh, this is amazing. Now, that same experience should be happening here because they're not appealing to people that would drive an electric smart car. They're appealing to the same people that would go to Formula One racing or watch Formula One racing. There's an essential piece missing there. These are the small details and it's a make a big, big difference. When we read content, 
how do we read it? Now, the tendency now with the Internet of Things is to naturally go to the Internet. So if you're searching for something, if you're Googling something, the first thing you will do is say, I'm designing a chair. So the first thing we'll type in is chair designs. So what you'll have is lots of other people's chair designs. What you won't have is the inspiration for a new chair. The thing about a library, um, now this is great, this is Birmingham Library back in the UK. You know, they really thought, although it does look a bit like a hat box, they really thought about people going in to a library, which is a novelty now because not many people do it. Not as many people do it as they used to. But the beauty of a library is you can randomly go and select something. So if you want to be inspired by colour or texture or the way something makes you feel. You can't just type colour into Google, you'll get the colours. Probably will give you a list of doctors to go and see. But if you wander into a library and you randomly go, I don't know, I, I, I want to design, we'll come back to chairs again probably, I want to design a chair, and you wander into, I don't know, something about horses, the first piece of inspiration that strikes you might be something that, wow, I can make the back legs of my chair look like a horse. Bad example, maybe. But it does mean that there's that, not necessarily random element, but it's the way that it makes your brain work. It's the way that it inspires you to do something based on something else. You will not be inspired to design a red chair by looking at lots of other people's red chairs. So this is about how you read. So again, kind of coming back to you know our series of apps, the majority of those are still reading experiences. Apart from the iBooks, the apps are by no means books. This is about absorbing content. You go to the Doctor Who encyclopedia, which essentially is what it is, and there are so many ways to discover that information from utterly random to spinning a TARDIS to panning around an environment full of content or to simply typing in a search box if you know what you're looking for. That's a big chunk of the way that people should work with and in interact with the Internet of Things. It shouldn't be about you will find it like this. It should be on, or it should feel as if it's on your terms. How will I discover things? And in doing so, how will I enjoy discovering them? How do we actually interact with this content? So rather than, say, getting on a laptop or a computer and typing things in, Googling stuff, what's the technology at our disposal now within the Internet of Things to actually find that content or be alerted to it? So iBeacons, these are amazing little devices. Um, they essentially trigger content. So for instance, you could have an app for a shopping centre. Now, every store that you go past within that shopping centre via an iBeacon can tell you and give you a compelling reason or make you speed up, one or the other, to go into that store. So it could say, come in now, there's two for three for the price of two on trousers, whatever, example. Within the store, using iBeacons, you're then able to localise the next message. So the message can be, turn left for trousers or when you happen to wander into another section, it can be offers about t-shirts. But then when you go up to the till, the cash register to pay, you're then given your final alert because there's another distance there and it can either tell you about the final thing, you may also like one of these, or you may like to pay with it with your phone or your tablet or whatever else, or your watch. So iBeacons have a lot going for them. They will work across platforms, so Android and, and iOS, and it means that they are passive as well. So it means that you're, you are not going to an iBeacon to get some information. They will tell you, in theory, on your own terms, because you will have signed up to actually receive that information. You arrive at the cinema and it gives you immediately, prompts you to what the latest film is, or you may get free popcorn with this film. And then gesture. I, we kind of talked about gesture earlier and the fact that waving my arms around, I want, my, I, I want to just kind of wander up to the, the window of my bank 
and wave my arms around, not look as if I want to rob it, but I want to kind of get some information without needing to go in. Now, I don't want to type something in, I don't want to do anything else, but that's a really simple interaction. Now, audio watermarking, now this is an example I'm going to show on a piece of video here, that normally with an audience like this, I would um, I'd say download one of our apps, um, then at this point, or hold your phones up and you will become the equivalent of that audience waving your lighters in the air. So this gives us the power to create that, but also we can take it a step further. So if we know where you're all sitting, it wouldn't quite work tonight, but if we had known your exact seat, so for instance at a, a concert, at the theatre, you know where someone is sat, you can turn that audience into an individual pixel. So as if you are all part of one giant screen. So imagine that, that view from overhead, suddenly this entire audience becomes a wash of light and colour. This environment here that I've got behind me is um, just in our, one of our rooms at Bramwith, and um, this gives you a little bit of an idea of how I would normally have taken control of you all, assimilated you. So the devices are listening out for an audio trigger to tell them, right, it's time to come on, time to light up, time to do your thing. So all these iPads and iPhones and Android devices in front here are now all working in time with the music behind. Great way to involve your audience with, you know, they're already mesmerized by the act that's on stage. Now they can be, become part of that experience. Now this works here. I mean, this is a great example of showing how, you know, an entire audience can participate with that. But of course, that can also work within a cinema or the audience second screening at home. So you don't need to be there for the event. But actually, you know, if that event is broadcast live, that suddenly extends and extends and extends that audience globally. Yeah, you can see everyone from above with the great camera angles that look, they've been turned into a screen. But look, I'm here I am at home joining in with that. Great ways to interact with that. Um, and then augmented reality overlays. So, I mean, we're taking things a bit further here and looked at Google Glass and pursued Google Glass and we've kind of looked at what's achievable there. But actually, you know, when, you, when it comes down to it, the things that genuinely give you information about your environment is something that's overlaid, something that gives you, you know, for instance, I will, I will come to it a little bit later about kind of heads up displays for, for cars, environments where you're talking about, you know, I might be cycling, I want to know what speed I'm going at, I want to know kind of what my range has been, and that's all there, everything's displayed in front of you. Um, again, great, that kind of touching on, on wearable technology, and then facial recognition, again, it's one of those things, any number of these pieces of technology have uses of good and bad. However, if you dwell on the bad for too long, you'd never do anything. But the facial recognition part is about saying, look, I'm going around a theme park. It knows where I've been, who I am, what I'm doing. That can be done with anything. That can be just monitoring your mobile phone. But actually, it doesn't know how I felt when I was on that ride. The facial recognition can know that I was smiling or screaming or crying, and it may react and do something else based on that. And then, of course, wearable technology. I mean, that's big thing which I will cover in a second. Better digital fabric equals better gameplay. So, you know, the more we make that seamless, the more we make that gesture, interaction, the way we work with something less of a chore, it makes it more about gameplay. Now, it's not about, you know, everyone thinking I'm, I'm, I'm checking in, I'm doing scores, I'm doing all this, because we'll alienate an entire generation. That's just about the whole process, and it's about that entertainment value, without necessarily knowing you're being entertained, but it, it sends you away with a smile on your, on your face, rather than a grimace, rather than thinking, that was painful, I don't really want to do that again. But then, continuity leads to memorable moments of emotional punctuation. Well, yes, that does. That's kind of about that smile on your face, and it's about saying... Look, I want to come back. I really, I don't object to coming back in your shop or coming back on that ride or using your car again. 
the marvel of mobile and the wonder of wearable, particularly back to our internet of things. Now, wearable technology, everyone's talking about it. We're not all using it. I asked my daughter, what's the mobile future? That's not the normal thing to ask, as she was at the time, a six-year-old. Her response was, oh, it looks like this, Daddy. So she a cereal box on her head, and she attached a phone to it, and she did this remarkably was the forerunner of wearable technology. She was talking about mobile, which to her was already natural. I mean, with the touchscreen, everything, it was natural to have a mobile something with her, whether it was her iPod or playing with my phone. Um, so then, you know, we posed the question to, by this time, both my daughters, and saying, well, what's the wearable future? So, you know, slightly different results. This was option one. She wanted a telescopic eye. Don't we all? But this, you know, what she was saying here was, you know, that's the ability. I, I, there is something over there. I want it here. You can't bring it here, but that's, that's the next best thing. And then she wanted, a, she wanted an amazing rotating ring that turned her into a helicopter. Why wouldn't you? I mean, this is a big part of that coming back to the library thing. She didn't Google wearable technology. I just said to her, what's the wearable future? So she just let her imagination run riot. If our starting point is this blank sheet of paper, and we start with the sensible things, we're never going to get anywhere. We want to start with the big things, the big ideas, the big picture. And we get sensible in the end. We have to produce this stuff. And, you know, most people need to make some money out of it. But if we don't start with the amazing imagination, then we're not going to get anywhere. So my other daughter, Hattie, well, she made this kind of thing. She wasn't too happy about it, as you may have noticed. She made a thing that sort of, they were like a pair of handcuffs and with a twirly thing that was an enormous clock. Smartwatch, bizarrely. I wasn't talking about smartwatches at the time, but this is the thing that she wanted. She wanted something that would tell the time on her wrist, but also, you know, have one of these things on it, which was kind of like an aerial or a funnel or a, another piece of amazing technology. After saying all of that, breaking news, wearable technology isn't the next big thing. And why is that? Because it's been around for a while. We can move on to things like this. That's clearly not the most compact flying device in the world. However, that's where we are now. Well, you think about, hang on a minute, we were wearing things like this 20, 30 years ago. Why are we only just getting to something like this? That's kind of our, part of it is down to our understanding and the acceptance of the audience. This is why we, now everybody's talking about wearable technology. That's what makes it relevant. No matter how many things that you do, or how many things that you make that the audience doesn't understand, it's not going to go anywhere. I've got a good example of that in a minute, but... Now, Moritz Voldemeyer, he's an incredible, incredible, incredible designer who's had the, sort of, some marvelous opportunities to work with some great brands that have allowed him to kind of run free and produce incredible things. We're talking about wearable technology. This is the epitome of wearable technology. Now, this is where we're coming from. Now, fashion brands are currently over here and tech brands are all the way over here. Now, what we need for this all to work is some meeting in the middle. Now, I don't want a smartwatch that looks you know, like a, a calculator on my wrist. And I don't want a fashion piece that will only be available to a very limited number of people. Perfect for this. I mean, Morris is, is you know, he, he is showing how this works. You know, this is the kind of theater that can be generated. But, you know, where we need is this middle ground that allows the, the consumers to wear this kind of technology. You look at this and, you know, incredible stuff for incredible artists. Now, you know, this kind of thing is, is beginning to transmit all sorts of content. Now, there's no reason why in five years' time you won't all be sat there with T-shirts on that are displaying your latest tweets or whatever you... That's not a euphemism. 
And then even down to the instruments themselves, why wouldn't you want something that you know comes to life um, well beyond its kind of its, its practicalities? Someone else that's doing that, Neil Harbison, taking things even a step further. And this isn't about wearable technology now, although essentially Neil is wearing a piece of technology here. He's paving the way for what we'll be talking about in five years' time. So in five years, we won't be talking about wearable technology in much the way that we're not really talking about mobile now, because everything should be mobile. In five years, we'll sort of be saying, well, everything should be wearable. What we're we doing next? Well, we'll be wearing it on the inside. We'll be having things that monitor us without thinking about the fact that you're putting something on to monitor something. We'll be communicating via a device that you know is pretty much non-existent visually. One of the barriers to Google Glass is the fact that, one, you look pretty stupid. Whoever you're talking to either thinks that you're not paying any attention to them because you're reading your emails or Twitter or something else, or you're videoing them. You have to take away a whole barrier again that didn't exist before in order to get at least back to where we are now. So for instance, if you're wearing digital contact lenses, that removes it. If everyone's wearing them, then you know, we start to forget about those, those problems that we were placing in front of us. First isn't everything. So this kind of comes back to the fact that we were talking about the understanding of content, the understanding of the way things work. Um, and that's always going to be something about new technology. And, you know, if you're the, the pace setter, if you're the, um, the person that is the early adopter, then you're in two camps. One is you don't want to look weird in which case that puts people off. Or two is you want to stand out from the crowd. BMW is a great example here. You know, they've had you know, the development and the understanding when an electric vehicle or a hybrid vehicle has been around now for a decade. People know what they are. They're comfortable with that. So what they were actually looking for was one that looked pretty good and drove pretty well. And here they are setting the scene. So back in 1985, no one really, this was like, oh, this is one of those. I don't want one of those. That looks really weird. Well, now people don't think about the weirdness. They just think about, I want one of those. And the same thing can be applied to why the iPad was successful. Well, the Newton, when Apple launched it, was a dismal failure. It was trying to do pretty much the same thing, really, in its, in its own time as we were doing with the iPad. However, no one knew what to do with it. They didn't understand it. Whereas the iPad was launched after the iPhone. So we'd had two years of people understanding that you touched a piece of glass, you moved things around like this, you downloaded an app, it connected to the internet like this, it was a mobile thing, and I took it around with me. Now, I touch one of these, I touch a piece of glass, I move things around, I download an app, I connect to the internet, and I carry it around with me. That's exactly the same as what one of those does, except you don't talk to anyone. To be quite honest, I don't really talk to anyone on this, but this is a big one of those. So everyone understood what this was, uh, and that was an enormous you know, benefit to the iPad that had Apple asked the audience, do you want one of these? They go, oh, I'm all right, I've got one of these. However, they gave everyone one of these and they went, oh, actually, that's quite good. I'll have that. That's a good idea. So that's a big difference. Don't always listen to your audience, but educate them. Give them a reason to want one. Um, I mean, this is very much the fault of the current crop of smartphones. Now, smart objects should be smart. They should look good. This is a little bit like that fashion meets technology part. Don't just give people something because you think, oh no, they want something on their wrist. Quick, give them something on their wrist. Think about how it looks. Think about how it feels. Think about how it makes someone feel. Now, a chunk of that is, you know, we have to re-educate an audience. So lots of people now don't even wear a watch because they get the 
phone out of their pocket and they look at the time on that. My iPhone runs out of power twice a day. My old watch didn't. That told me the time for at least 24 hours. That's one good reason for not doing it. Another good reason is I can't be bothered to get something out of my pocket just to check the time. I just want to do that. And then you think, well, actually, if I'm going to do that, then I want it to look quite cool. I'm not saying that the one on my wrist is that cool, actually, but um, I've been through a number of smartwatches. The first one, if I connected it to my phone so that it was smart, um, the battery lasted two hours. Genius. Uh, a two-hour watch is a bit like redefining time. Um, if I didn't connect it to the phone and it wasn't then a smartwatch, it lasted five or six hours. Brilliant. That's great. A whole quarter of a day. So then the next one I tried was actually quite good. It's called a Kogito Classic. Now that was had an analog display and it had a digital center. So the analog display, the battery would last at least a year. Tell the time, do what a watch should do. Now then the digital centerpiece would actually just give me alerts. It would tell me you've got a text message and here is the first few lines of that. Or you've got an email, again, first few prompts there. There's something on one of your social channels, go and look at it. They're the kind of things that you need, whereas, you know, suddenly we're confronted by smartwatch manufacturers that want to put everything that's on your smartphone on your wrist. That's a tiny little screen. Or it's a massive screen that won't fit up your sleeve. There's one or the other, and actually we shouldn't be having to compromise. So we look at things here. We look at the, um, the shine. Great kind of activity monitor. They've, they've kind of taken the leaf out of Apple's book and they've created titanium and whatever it is, aerospace grade titanium, amazing piece of design that the lights only show up when they have to. You can't see them otherwise. And amazingly, from Motorola, a nice looking smartwatch. Although it's not exactly pushing boundaries because it's just trying to be a normal watch but with a, a smart bit on the front, which doesn't have to do necessarily. And then an amazing kind of this is on Kickstarter at the moment, an amazing sleep monitor uh, that gradually glows and wakes you up in the morning, but looks great. You kind of want one of those by your bedside, unless you woke up out of a dream about aliens, in which case you might worry that you'd just been abducted. Now, beyond the device. Now, this, the point of this really was, it was in saying that we were talking about the iBeacons earlier. All of the hardware, that's all great, that's all fantastic, but the Internet of Things is still about that communication. So, you know, here's the, the, here's the um, illustration of saying, look, I'm walking past the store, reason to come in. Now I'm in a various sections, it will tell me, you know, what other offers there are, and then we go up here and I will pay with the device. But also we're kind of thinking about e-ticket entry. So you go into the train system, you go into anywhere that you would normally need either a card or money or some kind of access. And again, it's about that smooth transition to get you through. And then back to the wearable future. So how does that look? You know, what are we doing with those kind of things? Well, we've got stuff here. Okay, let's look at the devices for the Tour de France. Let's look at um, that, those kind of bits of heads up display. But also, you know, when you're in that kind of environment, that fast-paced environment that doesn't allow you to go pushing all the buttons to doing all the things, how do you immediately display that information in front of someone's eyes? Or, you know, if you take it out of this environment and you put it into something like um, supercar environment, a high-powered road car that you then want to take on a track, 
you're sat there with your glasses on and it's overlaying the ideal driving line and it's giving you all your information. This is saying there's a lot of play on fun stuff here. And it's not necessarily about being the most useful, most practical thing that you will ever need, but it's about giving that extra layer of experience. And then taking someone around a museum with that kind of overlaid environment and saying, look, this is what you're looking at. It's not taking a, an old device with a headphones on or it's not saying, here is your smartphone now do something else with it. It's about just giving you that overlay of information as you work your way around. And then also down to storytelling. So you think about how we tell stories at the moment. This is something I've been in publishing for, I will have been in publishing for 30 years next year. Uh, as I say, I started young. Currently, we, we think of a book, uh, even with those digital examples that I've shown you there, that for fiction, that reading experience is very set in its way. Now, there have been lots of experimentation about how do you then extend that with transmedia storytelling. Let's translate that one. <laughs> we, uh, we have something that will kind of sit across multiple platforms. Now, that works for our Internet of Things, but does the audience actually want that? I still enjoy, even whether it's a Kindle, mainly a Kindle, just black and white. However, if we're able to then take that on a level, and we're able to say, right, well, what can we do with that? It's another education piece. It's about saying there is another step you can take with, with, with fiction. And it's something like this. Now, there's another piece of video, and I, I might need a bit of audio, so um, I don't know how loud this will be. This is a project we've been working on called The Numinous Place. Now, Mark Stauffer was the head of production at Universal Studios in London, and he moved to L.A., decided he wanted to be a successful screenwriter, became a successful screenwriter, as you do, but then wrote his first novel. And he said, well, I want my, you know, I've written my first novel, but I want it to be bigger, better, and more amazing than just a novel. I want it to be interactive in some way. So he spoke to us, because he's seen some of the work that we've been doing, and um, together we were able to create something that didn't disrupt the narrative. Now, this was very important. It was about saying, now how do you take that regular reading experience that everyone understands and rather than just bombard them with lots of things and drop lots of content over the top, how do you make that seamlessly integrated? However, you take the kind of the ripple effect is you take that out beyond the boundaries. And it doesn't mean that I will send you here and you will do this and I will go over there. It just means that you're able to extend that by using you know, digital billboards on the underground, by knowing that someone has walked past because of the near field detection on their phone and saying, right, that piece of information will be displayed relating specifically to you because I know you're on page 286 of your book. But it's, you know, a big part of this is about that education process. In much the same way as you needed the iPhone before the iPad, you need to, and why should I wear a smartwatch when I don't wear a watch? You need to then explain in what seems like the audience's own terms, why do I need more than just a regular book? We don't need that for every book that you read, but there will always be those titles where you have that great opportunity to take something from, we're not trying to, to make a book into a film, that's a film. We're not trying to make it into a game, that's a game. What we're trying to do here is just give that extra depth and excitement to it. Now, what I wanted to bring with me was Oculus Rift, and we're doing some amazing stuff with this. I didn't bring it with me for... I, it always looks really dodgy taking it through customs. It looks like I've got some kind of night vision goggles and I'm going to be taken off into a small room and searched with a rubber glove. What we've got here is something like Oculus Rift, and if you think you put yourself in this headgear and it transports you into an environment, that's amazing. You kind of, once you've tried it on, you never want to play a game or interact with something in another way again, which is quite sad because it almost means that I'm not particularly bothered about the humans that would be on the headset. But the piece that's missing is saying, well, that's great, but I'm not in there. I can't see my hand. I can't do anything with that. So what we're doing is we're using iPhones to turn them into lightsabers. 
So you place yourself not only into the middle of Star Wars, you use your iPhone to become the hand that moves around wielding that lightsaber, and you have the battle in there. Fantastic stuff to do. And it, again, it's all about not, you know, we could have just said we settle for the thing that we have been given. But no, 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 that's not good enough. What we want is to take that on to the step we do that. But then the next step that we want to take that to is then place other people in that environment. Because, of course, a lightsaber battle on your own isn't much fun. So you want to have that with someone else. So lots of possibilities, amazing stuff. And the Swift gives us a great opportunity. I know Facebook have bought them. So there's all the concerns about what will that turn into. Actually, what that gives them is a whole load of money. And some of the first conversations have been with film studios about saying, place me not into the film, because I'd, I'd be pretty quickly travel sick if I watched a full-length film. But give me part of that film. Give me an experience. Why can't I be Spider-Man between the towers and flying through the middle of New York? Why can't I, you know, why can't I be my hero in that film? Well, of course, you can. This gives us all sorts of amazing opportunities. That's a quick, relatively quick, journey around the Internet of Things without telling you exactly what they all were. But there's an amazing world of connected content out there, connected devices, amazing platforms. But none of it is amazing without incredible stuff on it. So that's a big part of what we all have to play is, you know, if you're not creating it yourself, it's a great opportunity to tell people what you want forget about those barriers this is the digital world where we can pretty much create anything we want now the thing we have up here if anyone's interested and anyone has ipads free to download is digital publishing the next steps which gives a, a a brief outline of what i've talked about some of the things today from wearable technology to publishing to all the things all those digital goodies that are coming out um and then a range of all of our other things so that was me i hope you enjoyed that thank you the lecture took place at Strzelka Institute in 2014 in the framework of Urban Routines. To find more lectures from this conference, follow the YouTube link in episode's footnotes. See you in the next episode of the podcast in two weeks. Stay tuned.